0: Open your Bibles to the book of uh, Acts, chapter eight. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And as we move through the book of Acts, what we're talking about are these exact things that we saw in Malaysia, that we've seen in Egypt, that we've seen in Vietnam, that we've seen in other places around the world. Things that we've been a part of as we've traveled with training teams and construction teams and mission teams to places here in the United States and Central and South America and. Uh, medical teams over on the African continent is it's this business of being witnesses for Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we began a number of weeks ago, Luke writes Jesus' words, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And then as we saw in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 last week there was persecution that broke out against the church in the aftermath of Stephen's death. And it says, on that day, the persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All, all except the disciples, or all except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, those who had been scattered, this all that had been scattered, preached the word wherever they went. The bottom line is, is this is what we were created to do. This is what we've been called to do. This is what we've been empowered by God's Spirit to do. It says, all except the apostles were scattered. These were not professional clergy that were scattered. These weren't ministers. These weren't the preachers that had been scattered. These were regular people. These were, as Carolyn said, these were normal people that were scattered. Luke says they preached the gospel. The Greek word translated preached here means literally that they shared good news, or they shared the message of good news, or they proclaimed good news. But those who were scattered and who were doing this sharing weren't professionals. We have this this idea in our head when we hear that word preached, when we see it in the text, when we see it in Scripture, when we hear people talk about it, we hear preached, and immediately we think, Well, that's a job for the preacher. That's not our job. I'm not called to preach. I'm not qualified to preach. I'm not a preacher. I'd be scared to death to preach. Man, there's all kinds of things that go through our minds, and we think, that's not for me. That's not written for me. But again, these weren't preachers that were scattered. The apostles were the only ones that weren't scattered. Everybody else, the disciples were the ones that were scattered. And they shared the good news wherever they went. You know, we talk freely and we talk openly without prompting about all manner of things that excite us, the accomplishments of our children, the accomplishments of our grandchildren, new activities that we become involved with, sports teams. How about those warriors you know, man, I thought they would sink without Durant, but Steph's holding his own, man. They're going to go to the finals. I mean, I can talk with you about the playoffs because I'm following the playoffs, and I've got a favored team in the playoffs, and man, we'll, we'll sit down and we'll talk about those things without anyone prompting us whatsoever because we, we get excited about business ventures, about politics. We share about that in which we have interest the first century. Disciples were consumed by the gospel. They had to share about the good news of Jesus. This was the thing about which they were excited. They, they couldn't contain themselves. They were, they were compelled to share about Jesus. And they were compelled to share about Jesus because Jesus had made this incredible difference, He'd brought this incredible change to their lives. They knew it. They understood it. Their lives were never going to be the same again. They knew who the one true and living God was. They knew who their Savior was. They knew that they were eternal beings. They knew that they had point and purpose now that they never had before. And man, they were changed. They were excited. Their lives had been revolutionized. They were fulfilling the purpose that Jesus had declared for them. You will be my witnesses. This is the reason that God has given us his spirit, that we might have power to be witnesses for Jesus. The spirit of God, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, and I've said this many times, Paul tells us that the spirit is the seal of our salvation, that he's the guarantor of our salvation, that the Holy Spirit within us is the way that we know that we're saved. I've shared with you many times, I know I'm saved when I'm doing well when I'm following the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit, because typically that's a leading and a prompting in which I would never engage apart from the Holy Spirit, regardless of what ministry, what activity it is that I may be engaged in. If I can look at it and go, clearly this is something that the old Charles White would have never done, I can look and say, then it's the Holy Spirit at work that's doing that. It's not the Spirit of Charles, it's the Spirit of God. And even when I'm doing that, which I know I shouldn't be doing, the conviction Of the Holy Spirit and the reality that this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. This is not an activity that I should be engaged in. This is not an attitude that I should be entertaining. Those things affirm for me that change has taken place in my life and certain things are acceptable and certain things are no longer acceptable, but that's not by way of the judgment of Charles. That's by way of the the compunction, the compelling of the Holy Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God That has been given to us was not given to us simply to make us confident of our salvation. God didn't give us His Spirit and the Spirit's power just to be confident and comfortable ourselves. God gave us the Spirit and the Spirit's power so that we would be powerful witnesses for Him. That's the reason the Spirit was giving. And as we give witness to Christ, By the power of the Spirit of God, we have confidence of salvation because we see the Spirit at work. When we resist the Spirit, the Spirit's trying to work. We have confidence of the Spirit because the Spirit of God is at work within us. But that power of the Spirit was given to us so that we would be powerful witnesses. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5, we learn about Philip, one that was to be a powerful witness for God. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. As Philip moves beyond Jerusalem, as he moves beyond the area of Judea to Samaria, to the north of Jerusalem, we enter a new phase of the gospel. But this is not the first time Make no mistake that the gospel has penetrated into Samaria. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus had an encounter with a Samaritan woman. He had stopped on his travels north. He was going from Judea to Galilee, up around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. And on his travels there, he traveled straight through Samaria, and he became tired. The disciples, all of them did, and so they stopped to rest to get some food He, by a well, a Samaritan woman comes out. He asks her for a drink, and she says, why would you, a Jew, a man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She's shocked by the request, befuddled. Why is it that you would request this? And he says, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And a discussion ensues with Jesus revealing a personal knowledge of this woman's scandalous past, her history, something that he could have only known supernaturally. He eventually declared to her that he is the Messiah, and she believed. And and this is the first penetration of the gospel. But now Philip comes as a witness to Jesus, as the risen Lord and Savior, not the Jesus that taught the Samaritan. Well, it's the same Jesus, but now he's paid the price on Calvary. He's gone to the tomb. He's been raised from the dead. It's a fully orbed message that that uh, Philip brings. And in verse six, it says, "When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame." were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Philip demonstrated the same things that the disciples had demonstrated in the past. The demon possessed were released, the lame, the paralyzed, the sick were healed. So with family and friends and neighbors made whole and healthy, now there's great joy in the city. There's a there's a move of healing that is swept through their city. And so they pay close attention to Philip and what he has to say. Prior to his arrival, the people of this particular city had given spiritual leadership to a man named Simon that we read about in the passage of Scripture. He practiced magic, is what the Scripture tells us. We don't know if his magic was some sleight of hand or if there were evil spirits actually involved in what he did, as with the magicians in Egypt that copied Moses so well initially. Either way, He had fooled the people into believing him when he boasted to them that he was someone great. The majority of the people there believed that Simon had the power of God. And so they followed Simon. But now, verse 12 says, when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They ceased following Simon and they became followers of Jesus. In fact, verse 13 says that Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw Philip perform. In verse 14, we're told that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. See, God was doing a new work. Now, the gospel was spreading beyond the temple courts, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, up into Samaria, and the apostles had to see this for themselves. So Peter and John traveled to Samaria to affirm what they had heard, and when they got there, they saw that indeed this appeared legitimate, so they prayed for the believers to receive the Holy Spirit. They, they, and as they prayed, it says, the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans exactly as the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews. Apparently, God delayed the giving of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John arrived because he wanted no doubt in the minds of the apostles with regard to the spread of the gospel, that indeed God had accepted the Samaritans with whom there was such prejudicial attitude on the part of the Jewish people. Verse 18 says that when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving, with the laying on of hands, he offered Peter and John money. He offered them money saying, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, it doesn't say here, as they laid hands on the people and they received the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say that Simon received the Holy Spirit. Simon didn't receive the Holy Spirit. He saw others receive the Holy Spirit. and He wanted the power demonstrated By Peter and John. This was all Simon ever wanted. He didn't believe Jesus as Lord and Savior. When he believed, it was a belief in the power that Philip had displayed. That's why he followed Philip everywhere he went, so amazed by what he did. He saw the power displayed again when Peter and John prayed and laid hands on the Samaritan disciples. He longed for power, he was willing to spend money to get it, and he believed that power had something to do with Jesus. So this is where he was looking for the power. What we see in the story of Simon is that there is belief that results in salvation, that belief on the part of the Samaritan disciples, and there is a belief that does not. Simon believed and was baptized, but he did not experience salvation. James 2.19 James writes, you believe. He writes to to Christians in general. He says, "You, you believe that there is one God. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James has argued that actions accompany legitimate faith. Simply believing is not enough. True faith in Jesus results in actions that are compelled by the Spirit of God. We do that which that Spirit residing within us now compels us to do. James said even the demons believed in God. They're familiar with Jesus, but that belief is not belief. It is not faith unto salvation. You see, it is possible to believe the truth about Jesus and yet reject his leadership in your life precisely what Simon did. In verse 20, Peter answered Simon in the aftermath of his request, man, I'll I'll pay. Give me that power. I'll pay whatever you want. Just give me that power. Because he knew if he had that power, he could regain position in the community. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part nor share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see by your actions, by your attitude, that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Peter rebuked Simon. He makes plain that Simon has not experienced salvation. His heart is not right with God. He has no part in the ministry of Christ. He did not receive the Holy Spirit when he came. He's full of bitterness. He's captive to sin. The thoughts he entertains are evil. They're self-serving thoughts, Peter tells him to pray to the Lord and repent and seek forgiveness and as if to underscore that he does not know Jesus. Simon, instead of praying, ask Peter to pray for him. No, you pray for me that these things won't happen to me. See, God has called us to be his witnesses, but not everyone will understand nor embrace the good news of Jesus. Simon doesn't. He had the same clear understanding as given by Philip, as given by Peter and John. He he had the same explanation, but he completely misunderstands. There's a great majority of people, apparently, in this community that understood and put their faith in Christ, but Simon, he completely misunderstands the message of Jesus. But the gospel spreads, such is the nature of the gospel. Even in light of the misunderstanding of some, hearts are open to the gospel and the gospel spreads as we're faithful to be witnesses. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. We see the spread of the gospel taking place throughout Samaria. And in verse 26, it says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south. He's gone north to Samaria. Now an angel tells him, to go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the the Kandake, or of the the Candace, which is another name for the queen of Ethiopia. This man, this Ethiopian eunuch, this one in charge of the treasury, had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He says, do you understand what you're you're reading? How can I, the eunuch said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip first, as I said, went to Samaria in the north. Then he receives instructions to go south of Jerusalem. And there he encounters this Ethiopian, the treasury secretary of all Ethiopia, works for the queen of Ethiopia. The man is a believer in God who had gone to Jerusalem to worship, which was completely acceptable for others from other countries and nationalities and ethnicities to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, but he's also a eunuch who would have been barred from membership in the congregation of the Jews because of his physical defect, even though he believed in the God of Abraham. Because he was a eunuch, he could never be a member of the congregation of the people. As Philip happened upon him, he was reading from the prophet Isaiah, following the leadership of the Spirit, Philip inquires the man, he approaches him, asks if he understands what he's reading, and the Ethiopian says, no, no, and he invites Philip up to explain it. Verse 32 says, this is a passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and his lamb before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asks Philip, tell me please, Who's the prophet speaking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about Jesus. You see, the the whole of Scripture points us towards Jesus from Genesis to to Revelation. There are some passages, though, that are so crystal clear, and they're, they're pointing towards Jesus and what Jesus accomplished for us, and Isaiah 53 is one of those. Listen to Isaiah 53. Philip put it in context for the eunuch. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the one through whom he works. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a, like a root out of, out of dry, dry ground. That's what a, a shoot does. That's what a plant does. It, it shoots out of the, the ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to us, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't born of royal lineage. He was born to a carpenter and his young wife. There was no beauty or majesty that attracted people. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. His reference to the crucifixion event. People didn't understand it. He must have done something wrong. They thought about Jesus like we often think about those in the criminal justice system today. If they're there, they must be there because they're guilty of something, held in low esteem, despised by some, suffering all the consequences of that. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we've been healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? No, his disciples abandoned him. No one protested, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished and he died. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You remember Joseph of Arimathea was a man of means who claimed the body and placed it in his own grave. But this one who is the son of God was buried in the common graveyard with everyone else in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was buried with the the common, the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, done nothing wrong, there was no deceit, no lie, in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. He will not remain dead, and the will of the Father will prosper in his hand." Of Isaiah 53, those words specifically that the eunuch was reading, putting those into the context of the broader words of Isaiah 53 and explaining these speak of Jesus. This is precisely what happened to Jesus. And that death on the cross was an atoning death whereby he paid the price of our sins, he poured out his life that we might be guilt-free. Isaiah speaks a word of life that only Jesus can bring because he bore our sins and he set the captives free. In verse 36, it says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Throughout the passage, Luke refers to the Ethiopian as the eunuch. As I was going through my notes, I kept referring to him as the Ethiopian because I, I found that, that term eunuch objectionable, but not so with Luke. It seems like he refers to him as the eunuch throughout the entire passage. I believe that's because of the physical imperfection, that barred him from the congregation of the Jews was absolutely no bar to his acceptance by Jesus. Whatever imperfection there is in our lives, it is no bar. It does not prevent us from being accepted by Jesus. I've shared with you, I believe I probably shared last week, that when I came to Christ and I, I spoke on the phone with my friend John McEwen And he said, do you you want relationship with Christ? I, I said, yeah, but I believe that ship sailed. There's too much water under the bridge. There's too many imperfections. I've done too much wrong. And John said, no, no, it's not the case. There are no bars to acceptance by Jesus Christ. If you're willing to put your faith and trust in him, As Lord and Savior, if you're willing to lean into, lean hard upon his atoning death, there is no bar to acceptance by Jesus. He was a eunuch before he understood Jesus. He was a eunuch after he was baptized as well, but where he was stained with sin before Jesus after his baptism, after he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, after he acted upon his faith... He was completely forgiven, notwithstanding the fact that he had imperfections that barred him from membership in other groups. He was one with Jesus. He was a son of the Father. Verse 39, it says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing, just like the people of Samaria rejoiced at the message of Philip. The Ethiopian now rejoices in this knowledge of God, this acceptance by God. And the message has spread beyond Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria. And with the salvation of the Ethiopian, the message enters on to the African continent, to southern Egypt, and we begin the outreach to the rest of the known world, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Guys, this is what we are called to. And no single one of us has to do it all ourselves. We just have to do our part. Philip went where the Spirit led him to go. Philip spoke what the Spirit led him to speak. Philip went to Samaria, to Gaza. He goes to Azatos at the end of this passage. And then he goes to all of the towns between there and Caesarea where he settled and married and raised a family of four daughters. We won't read again of Philip until we get to, I believe, chapter 21 of the book of Acts. We will encounter him again as a married man with a, with a family. But, but what we can be guaranteed about Philip is, is he was faithful to be that witness. Wherever he went, wherever God sent him, wherever the Spirit led him, he was excited about this message of Jesus Christ and shared it wherever we went. Our inclination when we read of Philip is to think, eh, he wasn't a professional, but he became a professional pretty quick. I could never do that. I could never do what Philip did. I could never be responsive to the Spirit the way that Philip was. And my answer to you is you're absolutely right. You couldn't. But the Spirit of God can. What's impossible with men is is possible with God. That's what Jesus meant when he said, You will receive. Power, when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness. Our power to witness resides in the the Spirit of God. It is exercised when we respond to the promptings of God. The question is, is the Spirit operative in your life? Because God wants that Spirit to be operative in your life. This This is key and critical that we be surrendered to the Spirit, that the Spirit have control in our lives. It's what God wants. It's what God's called us to. It's what God's created us for. But there's got to be a surrender on our part. And we've got to examine ourselves. We've got to look deep. We've got to contemplate. What are those areas? And this is personal for me. Man, I, I struggle with this. What are those areas in your life that as of yet are unsurrendered to God. What is it that you're you're holding on to? You've given a bunch of things to God. I don't mind traveling to Malaysia. I can get out of my comfort zone, go to another country and eat other food and be in, you know, places I'm unfamiliar with and navigate airports by myself, and I'm a big boy. I you know, I can do those things, and that's not discomforting. Greatly, I, my my experience going into prisons has taught me that I'm I'm more like them than I am a lot of people on the outside. That that uh, you know that's that's not a discomforting thing for me. Some people, are, man, I could never do that. They see the bars and the wire and they just they freeze up and they think. And so I I, I can do that, but there are other areas of my life. I, I mean, we do what we're comfortable with is what we do, you know. If something's not intimidating to us, and, and Steve will jump off a bridge with a bungee cord tied to his ankles. I would never do that. I, I can't even figure out why that would be comfortable to anybody, but he's, he's, he, he's comfortable doing those things like that. You know, we're, we do that with which we are comfortable and that we're not comfortable with. We're resistant to. And the Holy Spirit wants to come in in those areas of discomfort in our lives, and move us beyond our comfort zone. Because listen, theres I'm not real sure what glory is gained by God when we do that which is comfortable. Because if we do it based on our own strength and our own comfort, then it's real easy for us to get credit for it. But when we do that which is out totally outside of our comfort zone, when we do that which is totally uncharacteristic, of us to do, then God's the one that gets the credit for it. We've got to give credit to God because we're looking at what we're doing and going, this is not me. I would never do this. I would never do this. What areas of your life are you holding on to comfort? I mean, you're doing some things for God, but now you can look and go, and I've, I've become comfortable. I can do these things. I've become comfortable with these because it's the way God works. It's, a, it's progressive. He moves us beyond our comfort zone. And we become comfortable eventually. And he moves us beyond our comfort zone again. And we become comfortable eventually. And then he moves us a little farther beyond our comfort zone. And this is until we see him face to face. This is the growing in Christ that he's called us to as we're witnesses for him wherever we go. Wherever we go. You stand. If you don't know Jesus... We want the word of God to witness to you this morning that he's prepared to accept you. He loves you and cares about you. And, and whatever has gone on in your life, whatever might be going on in your life right now, it is not bar to relationship with him. The only thing required is that you come and give it to him. Just say, God, here I am. and all of my brokenness, I give it to you. Will you accept me? And Jesus will say, absolutely. And I've got some exciting things that I want to engage you in. Come and go with me. And as we go with him, as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, then he goes to work in our lives and begins to bring that change that only God can bring. Begins to use you in ways that you would never have anticipated he would use you. But you've got to respond to him. If you've never before put your faith and trust fully in Jesus we want to give you that opportunity this morning know he loves you know he's prepared to accept you know he's prepared to change your life and christian and i challenge you because sanctification is that never-ending ongoing process i challenge you this morning look in your heart what are you holding on to that's a source of comfort for you that man god wants to move you beyond holding on to something perhaps that's barrier and inhibition to the next thing that god wants to use you for you can't, because you're holding on to this thing that provides comfort and stability to you, and it's probably time to, to let go of that. If you're even aware of it, man, if I say that, if there's something that comes to your mind that you're even aware of, that it's probably time to let go of that thing that God's bringing to your mind. It's be a great time to respond to God and say, "Lord, I've surrendered a bunch to you." I'm surrendering this to you today. Lord, show me. Show me what it is that you desire of me. Let's give it to God this morning. You respond to God. He's here, and he wants to interact with you. You respond to him this morning.